Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. As ever, thank you to all the school staff listening. The work you do has never been more important to the communities you serve. Before we begin, I'd just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around issues. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Okay, this week's guest is Dr. Kate Chatwall, OBE, Chief Executive of Challenge Partners. Kate holds a PhD in education policy and has over 15 years experience of leading policies and programmes to improve educational outcomes for disadvantaged children. Uh, Previous roles include Executive Director at Southwark Teaching School Alliance and Chief Programme Officer at the Future Leaders Trust. She also spent 11 years at the Department for Education. So uh, lots uh, of of things to talk about. Kate is uh, also a trustee of two Academy Trusts and co-founder of the Leading Women's Alliance. Hello, Kate. Hi, Caroline. Um, so, uh, we are talking today uh, about the work of, of Challenge Partners and some other things besides. So, just to begin with, for anyone listening who doesn't already know, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Challenge Partners and what you do? Of course. Challenge Partners is a practitioner-founded and led organisation that was established in 2011 to continue some of the great work that went on during the London Challenge. Uh, across the country. So Challenge Partners works with schools across the country to reduce educational inequality and to improve the life chances of all children. We do this through peer-led programmes to facilitate school improvement and professional development and to share great practice. We currently work with more than 550 schools and thousands of school leaders covering over a quarter of a million children. Great stuff. And um, obviously, uh, this last um, uh, period, uh, it has been it's been difficult to um, meet as a network. How is the work of Challenge Partners continuing virtually? In a whole range of ways. So we know that schools and trusts right now are developing and implementing plans for extending their provision. So primary schools thinking about admitting more children from nursery, reception, year one and year six, and secondary schools thinking about what they'll do for years 10 and 12. Uh, They're thinking about how to protect at-risk groups, how well children will manage social distancing, the challenges of the lack of PPE, and more general anxieties, including how to get to work safely in cities. So they're also thinking about how to manage in-school provision and remote learning at the same time. And we know that sharing with each other on how they plan to tackle these areas has really helped the schools in our network. And this is something that we facilitated in virtual meetings, bringing together colleagues from across the country where leaders have had a chance to share with each other and hear and feed back to the CFE. Locally, our 44 hubs have been meeting to share issues and solutions common to their areas. And this has saved everyone expending lots of energy in inventing the same wheels. We've also had the opportunity to have input from experts. So, for example, we hosted a very well-received webinar for schools by Mark Rowland, who's author of the 
author and advisor for improving outcomes for disadvantaged learners uh, and chair of our Excellence for Everyone Advisory Board. We also had a session with the Behavioural Insights team engagement around uh, remote learning and all this is helping schools and trusts to plan effectively for recovery as well as for the things that they need to do now. Schools in our network have also found it really helpful to share policies, letters and other useful materials that they've been creating on things like how to support children and families facing bereavement, resources to support children's mental health, updated safety policies and processes and CPD resources. So the schools in our network have been very generous at sharing those so that all can benefit and we'll be posting those on our website. Some available publicly for all schools to access, uh, some that are, that are a little bit more sensitive on our private members area. Great and, and as you say there's there's such a raft of different different issues but lots of very common issues so there's a sort of things that apply nationally obviously um you know region by region particularly as as the um pandemic uh, develops and 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 you know we're, we're speaking when um schools in the northwest for example are, are continuing to stay stay closed so must be really uh beneficial to be able to share at those different sort of uh scales uh, of conversation um absolutely i mean i think that one of the things that uh schools and trusts and challenge partners most value is the access to a national network because there are lots of ways already in the system to collaborate locally so being able to bring them together and ensuring that the lessons from Cornwall are able to be shared with schools in Sunderland is a really important part of the work that we do. But we also recognise that right now there are some kind of local specificities that need to be dealt with and those are best dealt with at a local level. So our 44 local hubs across the country provide an absolutely great forum for those kind of local level discussions. Great. And we mentioned um, uh, the, the, the work of challenge partners more generally at the beginning there. And obviously, peer, peer review uh, is, is, is a big part of, of, of what you do. Um, and just, just thinking, obviously, you've been talking about all that sort of fantastic sharing of, of ideas and, and, and collaboration going on. Uh, are, are schools ever nervous of, of being involved in the in the kind of peer review process or or, or, or joining um, more generally? And um, what would you say to somebody who has kind of reservations um, about sharing in that way? Yes, I think it's a really brave thing for a school to do to open itself up to scrutiny from peers. But it's also a really important thing to do if you are looking to drive your school forward and to improve. So I think what I'd say is, you know, hold on to that fear and recognise the benefits of really open collaborative peer review. Because what you're opening yourself up to in a peer review is not the kind of judgement that you get from Ofsted that's top down, but a process that is done with you. Uh, with support and your development and, and kind of best interests of your school and learners in mind. So an independent evaluation of our network of excellence by the Institute of Education 
found that our peer review delivers multiple gains. That was the name of the report. So it delivers gains to the schools being reviewed, to leaders who are acting as peer reviewers, and also to the system as a whole, which benefits from the sharing of knowledge about what works. So the process is robust and challenging, and I'm not going to shy away from that at all, but it is also developmental and supportive. It's done with mutual respect and a commitment to improving outcomes for all learners, not with judgment. So the schools benefit from having an independent evaluation of their strengths and development areas, but they're involved in every step of the process that's done with them and not to them. So our peer quality assurance review takes place typically over three days. We're looking at the moment about whether we can shorten it to two days without losing any of the, the breadth and depth of it. Um, and during those days, the external reviewers work very closely with the leaders of the school to make sure they get a really good understanding of what that school is doing to improve itself, particularly around uh, curriculum and teaching and learning. Uh, focusing on all learners, but particularly also on disadvantaged learners, because we know that they are the group who need our collective wisdom the most. So over those two or three days, the external reviewers firstly familiarise themselves with the school by looking at any documents that the school has, so their uh, self-evaluation, their school development plan, their data, all of those kind of things and use that to generate some questions that they'd really like to explore through the course of the review. That's the only activity that the external reviewers do on their own, and of course they're doing that with substantial input from the school being reviewed. But the activities themselves, where reviewers are going into lessons, are looking at books, and maybe spending a day following a pupil premium child around to look at their experience, where they're meeting with middle leaders, teachers, uh, governors to really get an understanding of what's going on in the school. All of those activities are conducted in partnership with leaders from the host school. And I think where the magic really happens is that after each of those activities, there is a rich professional dialogue that goes on between the external reviewer and uh, the leader from the school. So they can spend some time together saying, what is it that we just saw in that lesson? What was really great about it? Uh, what might need to improve? And actually, you know, triangulating with all of the other pairs of reviewers who've been going around the school, is what we've seen in that lesson common across the school or is it something that's particular for that uh, teacher? So it's really, uh, so that they're really able to quickly build up a picture of what's going on across the school. So what are its systemic areas of excellence uh, but also what are the areas it needs to uh, develop. And all of that's done with a real sense of common purpose of what we want to do is work together here to get the best outcomes for these children. So that's what the school gets out of it. Then the peer reviewers themselves benefit from a really high quality experiential training uh, process that prepares them to undertake those quality assurance reviews. And that training is led by our two head reviewers who are incredibly experienced hospital inspectors. They also then get coaching and support from our expert lead reviewers throughout the course of the reviews that they're on. And again, most of our lead reviewers are serving Ofsted inspectors. 
but it's worth saying that for us they play a very different uh, role which is more supportive and developmental and their role is really to to coach the reviewers and to lead the review team to come to robust uh, evidence-based evaluation of what's going on in the school but not to um, overlay their own judgment on that so whilst on review the reviewers also have the opportunity to reflect on their own school's practice and to magpie great ideas to take back to their own school so their own school also benefits in addition to that, we are really disciplined and systematic about gathering the evidence of what is working in schools and understanding why it's working, how it's working, is it working because it's in a specific context, so that we can then share that knowledge more widely, both uh, across the challenge partners network, but also with the sector as a whole. The aim there is to ensure that excellent practice becomes common practice across the system sounds uh, fascinating, particularly uh, that idea of, of, of really getting under the skin of, of why something works in a particular place and how easy it is to, um, you know, um, use that idea elsewhere. I think that's something that, that, that I've often seen where, you, where you're using best practice and, and case study. Uh, exactly how how applicable things are in every context and or how to make those things work in in your own context that must that must um, bring bring to light some really really useful um, insights and ideas there it does and one of the things that we do do is ask that if through the review process an area of excellence is identified uh, within a school and there's a very high bar for the accreditation of an area of excellence capital a capital e um, that that school then offers to share their experience um, and policies and practice with schools across the network Typically, they'll do that by putting on something that we call a leadership development day, which enables pairs of leaders from other schools to go in and really get beneath the skin of the area of excellence over the course of a whole day to really understand to deep level what the school's doing and how it might be relevant to their own school and practice. And we encourage them to attend those things in pairs because part of what's powerful is the conversation that they have on the way there and on the way back about how they're going to implement that practice in their own school. Now, obviously, that kind of travel isn't uh, possible at the moment, but we are um, still hosting leadership development days virtually within our network and they're open to schools outside challenge partners and you don't get the opportunity to discuss as you're traveling but you do get the opportunity to get insights into the practice of uh, some of our really successful schools so for example we've recently had a leadership development day around uh, developing a digital learning strategy which one of the uh, trusts within our network has been very successful in doing and they're also an edtech demonstrator school mm. so webinar of that we've got another leadership development day coming up shortly looking at some of the issues around supporting children who've experienced trauma which of course many of them uh, who have experienced kind of bereavements and other uh, trauma related to covid will be facing as they come back into school so that's constantly updated on our website for anyone who wants to um, take a look and maybe participate great stuff <laughs>
and I'm, I'm interested in what role you think peer review plays in the sort of school improvement process more, more broadly, particularly now we've got the sort of traditional high stakes methods of, of accountability like exam results and Ofsted on, on hold. Absolutely. So robust peer review, I think, has a crucial role to play in school improvement. Um, you have to have a really good understanding of where you are now uh, and before you can formulate really strong plans about how you want to improve and where you want to get to next. Um, so as the independent multiple gains evaluation showed, that's the evaluation report from the Institute of Education that I've already mentioned. Uh, being part of school peer review um, can provide a really rigorous evaluation to ensure that strengths can be built on in a school and challenges overcome. For reviewers, it stimulates their own thinking and ideas to improve their school. And for the system as a whole, it's an important way to gather and share evidence of what works, where and how, so that that excellent practice can become common practice. Because what we're really interested in at Challenge Partners yes is the improvement of individual schools and clearly that's why a lot of schools participate in challenge partners to drive their own improvement forward but we're also interested in the improvement of the system as a whole the thing that we're really aiming for is upwards convergence in the system so the best schools continuing to get better and that's giving us the capacity to support uh, schools that are maybe further behind on their improvement journey to improve more rapidly. I think one of my reflections from my time in DfE is that naturally when you've got limited resources, what you focus on is underperformance and bringing the poorest performing schools up to the average. But actually what gets neglected is those high performing schools and how they continue to improve. And I think if you don't continue to nurture those schools, then you can never really achieve a world-class education system and you also can't create the capacity for the system to improve itself. So that's really important to us as challenge partners. In terms of your question around what makes for high quality peer review, um, following the work of the Accountability Commission a couple of years ago, which suggested that peer review should become the norm rather than the exception, we did some work last year with members of that commission to identify what the features are of a high quality peer review. We launched those findings at a round table with Gavin Williamson um, just before the election in December. And of the 16 features in that document of what makes for a, an effective peer review, there are three that I would particularly highlight, some of which are unique to the Challenge Partners Quality Assurance Review. So the first of those is starting with a common purpose around securing better outcomes for all, recognising that excellence in the system isn't a zero-sum game. All schools and challenge partners share that moral purpose, a set of values and approach to improvement through collaboration and challenge, which enables them to develop quickly the trust and shared commitment to, uh, in, to deliver the collective good. The second is ensuring that the review is rigorous and objective. Only our quality assurance reviews are conducted by leaders travelling across the country to review each other's schools. And we think that that's really important for leaders not to review schools on their doorstep, 
because it avoids it becoming either a cosy chat or one where the school being reviewed doesn't feel comfortable revealing their challenges mm -hmm. because they're maybe uh, revealing them to a school they're competing with students. So we think that that geographical distance is really important in enabling professional distance and um, robust and objective challenge. So the best reviews are the ones where the only interest of all concerned is getting the best possible outcomes for the children in the school, with the school being honest about its challenges and the reviewers being willing to have courageous conversations in the interest of children and not holding anything back. And we think by having reviews that are conducted by people traveling outside their areas across the country really enables that. And I think it's worth saying at this time that obviously we do have a few challenges uh, with leaders being able to travel across the country uh, to review each other's schools in a, in a lockdown situation. So what we're planning for next year is to ensure that schools continue to get reviews from leaders outside their immediate local area, but perhaps not have them travelling across the country. Mm -hmm. So we're looking, for example, at how we might be able to facilitate reviews within a geographical region so that we can uh, work around any regional lockdowns, for example. Uh, the final feature that I think is really important uh, in a high quality peer review is ensuring that the review is done with and not to the school that's being reviewed. And I think this is the key difference between inspections from Ofsted and it's also where the real magic happens. Uh, leaders from the school and the external reviewers work in pairs, as I've said before, to gather evidence and evaluate the practice they see. And the rich professional dialogue that they then have makes for incredible personal reflection and CPD for those who are involved. And it also ensures that the picture reflected back to the school at the end of the review is one that the school recognises and accepts because they've been on the same journey of discovery about their school. So, Kate, with traditional high stakes methods of accountability, like exam results and Ofsted, on, on pause for at least the foreseeable future. Do you think there is a sort of more of a role for peer review in the next few years? Caroline, I absolutely do. In our recent evidence to the Select Committee, the Education Select Committee, we urged the government not to rush back to full inspections. So we know that disruption to schooling is possible over the next year and believe that contingency planning needs to focus on helping schools to work together to tackle these difficult new and systemic issues, like how do you uh, teach the children in front of you, but also have really good online provision, how do you keep them safe, all of those questions. And we believe that in that context, peer review should absolutely be the norm and not the exception you know, especially during that period of flux where regular accountability can't and shouldn't function in the usual way. This is going to be really important to providing individual schools with the challenge and support that they need through what's likely to be an extended phase of recovery and as a way of rapidly identifying and mobilising evidence of what's working. We think that peer review is a much better vehicle for this than inspection, not least because it can be backed up by peer support and the rapid sharing of identified excellence, which isn't something that Ofsted can do. 
it would ensure that schools get the supportive challenge that they need to do the best for their pupils and especially disadvantaged pupils whilst leaving Ofsted to focus on the equally important question of uh, safeguarding and other critical issues like that. Indeed. Just just interested, uh, Kate, we've, we've talked about the school uh, peer review process and I know you've been uh, tr- trialling a kind of t- trust review process. How How is that different and, and what are you learning from that? Yes, so our trust peer reviews um, have recently been positively evaluated by the National Foundation for Educational Research, or NFER, and build on our nine years' experience at school-level peer review. Um, Essentially, they take the same model of an approach where the review is done with rather than to the host trust, and the focus is very strongly on school improvement across the trust and why and how children in that trust are getting better outcomes uh, than they would have done otherwise, you know, because frankly, if they're not, what's the point? So it takes as its starting point um, the, the trust in wherever it is in its journey, accepting that all trusts are different in shapes and sizes, how long they've been around for, and all of those kind of things. So the reviewers were really encouraged to understand where is this trust coming from, where is it trying to get to, and how is it doing uh, that. So the trust is evaluated very much on its own terms, but always with that key question of, is it delivering better outcomes for children in mind? So from doing those reviews, we've uh, generated some really interesting insights into trust development and multi-school improvement. And we think that's really important because there's actually very little evidence out there about what works uh, within trusts because so many of them are so young. So the oldest are only into their teens and many are in their infancy. But consistent with the research by Professor Toby Greeney and others, our reviews have shown that there isn't any one right approach to developing a trust or improving the schools within it. We did see effective trusts that use approaches from right across the continuum of autonomy to standardisation. However, we did also identify some common challenges in the trusts that we reviewed. So, for example, at trust level, I think the two common challenges that we saw were difficulties in articulating and aligning around the approach to school improvement. So, in some cases, it wasn't really clear and explicit what that approach was, although it was often implicit and kind of held in the head of the trust leader. Mm. But we weren't really able to see, did everyone know what that approach was and understand it? And then linked to that, there were some challenges around systems and succession planning. So what we found quite often was that there was an accidental CEO leading the trust. And what I mean by that is somebody who was really effective as a leader of a single school, who was then asked to take on maybe another school and then another and another. And they have grown up with the trust and the trust has developed with them and so have the Uh, systems and policies and practices and approach to school improvement but it hasn't always been as well documented and as explicit as it could be 
And clearly, as those CEOs move on, there's a risk that they are the single point of failure, that they take all of that knowledge, um, you know, passive and implicit knowledge with them, and it isn't sustained within the trust. So there's a real challenge, I think, for those types of trusts to think about their systems and succession planning to make sure that they're not uh, dependent on a single leader. So those are the trust level challenges. And then I think at system level, there are also challenges. So one of those is about ensuring that expertise and good practice isn't locked in individual trusts. Uh, one of the reasons that Challenge Partners started was with the recognition that there is great practice in the system already, but it can too often be locked up in an individual department, uh, year group or school. And there is a job to do to unlock that, to make sure that that great practice can become common practice. The same thing is now happening within trusts, and what we want to make sure is that trusts are able to learn from each other as well. And that links to the second kind of system level problem, which is that there are lots of trusts who are reinventing the same wheel. Um, so how can we make sure that the trusts that are a bit further in their development journey are sharing their expertise and experience with less experienced trusts so that they don't have to reinvent the same wheel? Yes, I mean, really, really interesting there, especially, uh, you know, talking about the, the trusts being in their, their, their infancy, a lot of trusts having a, a mixture of schools at different levels of, of development or taking on schools in, in quite challenging circumstances and kind of balancing that capacity of the central team uh, in order to, to, to sort of um, turn schools around or lead to to rapid improvement uh, really yeah interesting uh, findings there and will you be doing doing more of um, trust trust review in the in the future uh, yes we are going to do more trust reviews um, as soon as we are able to uh, get out and spend time in other trusts we'll definitely be doing more of those just before lockdown happens uh, we had trained a whole um, cadre of uh, trust leaders who were very keen to go out and review other trusts and have some trusts lined up who were uh, ready to invite them in. So we'll be getting going with those again as soon as we can. There are also opportunities for new trusts to sign up and for more trust leaders to be trained as uh, peer reviewers if they'd like to be part of that process. And there's information about all of that on our website. Thinking about your Excellence for Everyone programme, which is really focused on, on challenging the link between poverty and poor outcomes. We are, you know, the, the mind of the sector is, is, is rightly focused on the disadvantage gap widening um, over, over the next wee while as we, as we deal in, in home learning and partial school reopening and, and all of these kinds of things. Um, are there any sort of learnings from, from your network and, and the work that you've been, been doing um, and sort of emerging ideas um, about how, how schools can, can make sure that um, no pupils are getting left behind throughout this experience? Absolutely. Um, although I have to say that the key learning here, I'm afraid, is that there is no magic bullet. So I can't just give you an answer and say this will solve the problem. And of course, what we know is that even before lockdown, the gap between disadvantaged pupils and their better off peers was already widening. Mm. Um, and that's 
accelerated and exacerbated by the introduction to education recently. But what we do know is that when it comes to unlocking the success for disadvantaged children, there's really no substitute for really, really knowing and understanding the children in front of you and seeing beyond that label. So what we do find is that when schools really engage with individual disadvantaged children, the insights they gain and the solutions that they then put in place quickly go whole school and do benefit all disadvantaged children and indeed all other children in the school as well. And I guess that's partly because it's as much about culture, mindset and determination as it is about the particular strategies that are put in place. When it does come to strategies, we know from the EES and from our work with schools who've bucked the trend that things like quality first teaching, self-efficacy for learners and parental engagement all really matter. And that's why we've got modules in, on each of those in our Excellence for Everyone programme. We're also really excited to be working with Impact Head to evaluate the effectiveness of the strategies that schools participating in Excellence for Everyone are using so that we can share evidence of what's working for them more widely. We're also partnering, partnering with Impact Head on a tool that they've developed to assess individual students' recovery needs to help students with their planning when schools are able to go back. Mm. Wow. Um, you have to keep us posted on, on that. That sounds like a really useful tool and um, just just finally we, we mentioned in the introduction that you've you've worked both inside and outside of, of government and I think it's fair to say the past few months have been challenging for everybody involved in schools uh, and there has been a lot of frustration in the sector towards policymakers uh, what are your what are your thoughts about how we can move forward productively um, as, as schools progressively open to, to more pupils? I know that there's been a lot of frustration uh, with policymakers over recent months. Um, I also know that they've been working really tirelessly to ensure that schools have the guidance and support that they need. Um, they themselves, the officials, know that they don't always get it right, including particularly on the timing of some of the guidance that they've put out um, and the frequent revisions to it as they get more questions and feedback from the sector. Um, a senior official came recently to talk to some of our primary leaders about uh, reopening to some year groups, and she was really candid about some of the things that they hadn't done so well. She was also incredibly reflective and responsive to the feedback our practitioners gave. And I have to say that as a former insider, I can honestly say that I've, no, that I've never known the DfE to move with such speed and openness to feedback as they have done over recent months. They've been incredibly open to all of our requests and feedback, very responsive to all of those things, um, able to provide some of the rationale for what they've been doing you know, and taking on board our comments. And although they don't always get it right, at the end of the day, they are human beings who are doing their best like the rest of us. I think it's absolutely right that we should hold elected politicians accountable for some of these things. But I do think that it's unfair to vilify civil servants who have no right to reply. So they definitely don't choose to be faceless bureaucrats, but it is something that their role requires them to be. 
although I should say that with the officials who've engaged with us, they've shown us to be, they've shown themselves to be anything other than faceless bureaucrats. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. There's a lot about, um, you know, it, timing is unfortunate, the complexity of the, the situation, a lot of things out of the, the control necessarily of the, the people issuing the guidance, but that it is worthwhile having the conversation, feed, feeding back in whatever forums you, you can to, to the people um, uh, writing the guidance, um, and 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 try and um, it, improve it, I, I, I guess. And um, I think you're right, you, as you say. Um, uh, lots of different organisations that that, that 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 we work with have been engaging in dialogue and 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 feeding back uh, concerns in that way. So if you are part of a of of, of an organisation um, that that you can do that through as a school leader, um, I think you know that that's possibly um, a productive a productive way. Uh, forward and anything else that you'd, you'd like to to share with our listeners on closing yeah I mean I think following up on that uh, theme around the government I think the one thing that the government uh, you know particularly thinking about the prime minister and ministers here haven't yet done enough is to recognize and celebrate the incredible work going on in schools up and down our country at a time of really great challenge. It frustrates me greatly the way uh, teachers and other school staff aren't recognised or seem to be recognised only as an afterthought in some of those uh, evening briefings. Um, I think that their commitment should be highlighted in every single one of the briefings every single day because they are working incredibly hard. So in the absence of that, and I know I'm no Boris Johnson, and I'm probably quite pleased about that. I think we're all pleased um, about would, that. <laughs> I would like to offer my own very humble thanks to every single member of school staff who supported our children, family and communities uh, over the last few months. I think they're all amazing. Indeed, and can't, can't agree with you more. Um, there hasn't been enough um, recognition Every time that I hear schools are closed on a newspaper or TV, it makes me want to scream um, because the dedication, commitment and passion of the teaching profession to keep those schools open and those children learning and supported is, is, is phenomenal. Um, so thank you very much, Kate. And thank you for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to Members of the Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at keysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at keysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.